Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. As you know, we're busy with a theme entitled Miracles. This entire year, the theme that God gave us is Miracles. And we kicked off the first part of the year by looking at the miracles uh, in the book of John. And we looked at a couple of really cool ones. And to be honest with you, those are my favorite kind of miracles. You know those ones where, um, guys, I need that little clicker. I forgot to get it. So could somebody get that little clicker from the back? Those miracles where instantaneously, one moment there's no wine, only a whole lot of water, and the next minute, boom, water, wine. Those are cool, aren't they? The one Gracie spoke about, oh, so super cool. One kid with five loaves and two fish, and then... Boom, the next minute, 5,000 men, never mind the women and children, all get to eat out of five loaves and two fish. And they have so much that afterward they pick up all what's left over, 12 baskets are full. Those are super cool. But I want to talk about a slightly different kind of miracle. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be focusing on marketplace miracles. And believe me, in the marketplace, I trust God daily for those instantaneous miracles. But what I found is that whilst we trust God and we see them, what is often much more effective and much more impactful in the long run is when we show up day after day, week after week, month after month, trusting God to bring His life, His purpose, and His power into every single decision that we make in the marketplace. I was doing some research before the sermon And I studied this community. In this community, when they started the study, child death rates were at 40%. Four out of every 10 kids didn't make it. By the end of the study, it was down to 4%. Four out of every 100. Still too many, but a significant improvement. In the same community, when the study started, average life expectancy was 29 years old. Who wouldn't be here tonight? All right, a lot of us. Okay, this is the hub service, pretty more of you. In the, in the morning service, there were none of us that were going to make it, all right? But now, today, that same community enjoys 71-year life expectancy. Beginning of the study, people in this community, nine out of every ten people were in abject poverty. Abject poverty is defined as earning less than $1.90 per day. That's... a month, times that by 17, you'll get a sense of what we're talking about. And now, one in every 10. Still too much, but wow, what an improvement. And literacy rates, at the beginning of this study, 12 out of every 100 people, only 12, could read. And by the end of the study, 86 out of every 100 people could read. Now, how many of you believe that that is as much of a miracle as turning water into wine? How many of you would like to have been or like to be in that community now looking back and going, wow, God? Good news. Every single one of us are in this community because that's, what happened in, that's what's happened in the world over the last 200 years. You see, the reason I wanted to start my sermon this way is because there is a narrative going around 
probably influenced by all the social media, that the world is now worse than it's ever been, more dangerous than it's ever been. It's so hectic that if Jesus doesn't come back this week, Lord help us. I don't know if I was the only one, but when I was a kid, just before a big exam, I'd be praying, Lord Jesus, please, if you could come back tonight, just please, Lord. He never did. But friends, this is what's happened in the world. This didn't happen because instantaneously water was turned into wine. But this happened because kingdom principles were applied day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, over a 200-year period. And the world has improved. And in some respects, the world is a much better place today than it has been over the last, well, forever. How did the world get this way? How did we see this improvement? Those of you that are historians, history teachers in the room, if I said 1400s, you would immediately know the Renaissance and the Reformation. There was an explosion there was of thinking. There was an explosion of rational thought. But still, living conditions didn't improve for the average person a lot later. In about the 1800s, things started peaking up and started, started rapidly escalating. In the 1800s, it was the time of the Industrial Revolution. All of a sudden, efficiencies were starting to improve. Where one man could do so much, a, a machine could do a 100 times that. And for the first time ever, labor became valuable. If you had a skill, it became so valuable because now you could improve productivity, and so skills became valued. And whilst this happened, then of course we hit the information age with the internet, and that just caused things to escalate even further because now information was readily available. And so what happened is when people were concerned about their communities, they would trust God, they would press in, they would look at things, and they would say, how can we make this community safer? And they discovered that diseases are carried when water is just lying around and there's sewage all over the place, and so they started cleaning things up. That, by the way, is what's led to most of the improved uh, mortality rates with children. And so they started, they started seeing all this thing, and so all of a sudden, all of a sudden, over a 200-year period, we started seeing these improvements taking place. Most of these improvements were led in the West. Now, we know the West is not, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of the West that's not great. But a man wrote a book. His name was Vishal Mangalwadi. He's Indian. He started scratching his head one day and he said, God, why is it that the nations in the West seem to be prospering so much more than the nations in the East? Why is it that Europe and the U.S. seem to be prospering and flourishing much more than my own nation in India? And as he started studying and started researching, he realized something. That even though the historic events that we've just spoken about were, were the, 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 the catalysts that got things going, they were sparked because of something which influenced the West much more so than it influenced anything else, and that was the Word of God. You see, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Castle, when they started realizing that you're saved by grace through faith, when the printing press was developed and this word was printed and started spreading out across the world and translated into the modern-day language of the time, German and English, and people started absorbing this and realizing the truth in this and applying it in their lives, something started happening. Some of the things that started happening was that rational thought and the pursuit of knowledge started escalating. Why? Because the Word of God promotes those ideals. 
Timothy tells us, he says, study. Paul tells Timothy, study to show yourself approved. A good workman correctly dividing the word of truth. And so he was, you know, where there was this ideals of rational thought were being promoted by the word of God. Hard work and stewardship were being promoted by the word of God. Dignity and sanctity of life. From the Old Testament, there is a command, thou shalt not kill. In the New Testament, we are commanded to love our neighbor. The, t- the Word of God tells us we have one life to live. You see, as opposed to Eastern thinking and thought which says, well, you know what? There's this thing called reincarnation. And if you don't quite get it right this time, that's okay because you'll come back immediately as something else, hopefully something a bit better, and you will slowly, forever over eternity, kind of make your way up and improve yourself if things go in the right direction. And so because you believe in reincarnation means you don't value life as much. And so health care and, um, and, 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 and sanitation systems and developing for the, be- the benefit of the people aren't as important to you because, you know, life isn't as valuable to you as it is in some other nations. The Word of God promotes property rights and the rule of law. And nations that have got property rights and the rule of law have been much more prosperous historically. Prosperous historically. Why? Because if I work hard and there's no thing there and there's nothing there to protect what I've worked hard for and someone can just take it from me, well, then what's the point of working hard? And so he started looking at this and he realized that what had separated many of the Western nations from others was that they had taken the Word of God and they had applied it into everyday life. And he warns the West and he says, why are you so quick to run from the very book that gave you such a head start in the first place? Why are you so quick to throw this out and just say, well, you know what, okay, we're just going to kind of just, you know, we're now going to kind of cancel anything that doesn't quite fit in with an inclusive way of doing things. And so, friends, what we see is the Word of God was on the cutting edge. It was at the forefront of getting us to the place where we could see a world that had that kind of improvement over the last 200 years. And friends, that's why truth matters. You see, there's this concept nowadays that absolute truth, well, who knows what that really is, but your truth, my truth, where they kind of overlap, well, then we can kind of coalesce, but hey, otherwise yours, yours is cool, mine's cool, Everything's cool. But you see things, friends, there is something called absolute truth. And the application of absolute truth over the last 200 years by some of the Western nations resulted in increased increased prosperity and better healthcare systems. You see, you and I can sit down and we can both agree and we say, listen, we know there's this thing called gravity. But our truth, we choose to agree that gravity for us does not exist. For us, gravity is not real. But if we took a walk off the edge of this building, it doesn't matter whether you and I, our truth, your truth, my truth, our agreed truth, even if we pray the prayer of faith in agreement on that truth. Because you see, there's something called ultimate truth. And that's that gravity will take effect when I step off the edge of the building and I'm going to drop. I love I love the way we learn today. 
It's much better than when I was a kid. The way we kind of get together, we collaborate. We don't have one person just kind of telling us everything. We kind of get together. We teach each other. We put forward ideas. We put forward. I've got a connect group. Every week, we sit down as a connect group, and we pick up one of the topics that have hit the, that have hit the news this week, and we weigh in, and we say, what do we believe? What do we think the right thing is? But you know what, friends? We can leave that meeting just with our own ideas, but if we don't root it, in saying, okay, so we all, have ver- we all have versions of this, but what is God's version of what's happening here? Is there some ultimate truth that we can apply into the situation? Because if there is some ultimate truth, to be honest, my view, your view, it's pretty much a waste of time if we're not going to root it in something that's going to give us some credibility in which we go forward. I don't know about you, but sometimes reconciling the tough bits is hard for me. Maybe it's just me, okay? I'll give you an example. God's Word tells us that He is love. God's Word tells us that He can never lie. And then I read in the New Testament that Jesus is in the temple... And he's not very happy with what he's seeing. So he picks up a rope, makes it a whip, and he climbs into the money changers, turns over their tables. There's lambs running riot. There's just all sorts of mayhem and chaos. And I look at this and I go, God is love. God can never lie. And I see this, and in the natural, in my mind's eye, I'm going, Lord, how does this correlate? How does this reconcile? You see, I've got two choices when I find things in God's Word that I don't like, that kind of jar my thoughts. I've got two choices. The one, the one choice is this. God, I don't get it. So unless you reconcile it in my mind, you know what? I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. I tried that. It doesn't work though for me, and I'll tell you why. Because I cannot deny what His Word has done over the last 7,000 years. I cannot deny what His Word has done in my life and the power that I see moving. And so what I do and what I want to urge every single one of us to do is this. When we see something that just cannot be reconciled in our heads, step in closer to God. Just get closer to His heart. You see, it's okay not to understand. It's okay to be angry with God at times. It's okay to say, Lord, I don't understand. But it's not okay to say, God, therefore I'm tossing it all out of the window. Step in. Say, Lord, I don't get this. And to be honest, I'm angry. To be honest, I'm fearful. But Lord, I know that even though I don't understand how to reconcile these, I know you're good. I know you're God, and Lord, I'm going to draw closer to your heart. This is what Paul was telling the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. He's talking about the Jews and the Jews that just don't see Jesus. And he says this, he says, To this very day, whenever Moses is read, there is a veil that lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. I was sitting and thinking and saying, God, look, 
Wouldn't it be so much simpler that if we don't see things and we can't correlate things because there's this veil over our hearts, Lord, why don't you just lift that veil? That we can see who you are for real and then there's no debate because then, okay, we can see the truth. And God said, no, I don't do it that way. And I believe he doesn't do it that way because sometimes even when you see the truth, there's something else that's preventing us from really following that truth. And so what God says, God says, you desire me first. Even if you're looking in the wrong place, but if you truly desire me, I will remove that veil and I will reveal Jesus to you. And so I want to encourage us, guys. If there's certain things, and there's lots, I'm sure there's many, and you read the Word of God and you say, God, I just don't understand. That just doesn't correlate. And that makes me angry. That's okay. But then step in. Get closer to Daddy's heart. And say, Father, I don't get this. But Lord, show me. Because truth matters, friends. Truth matters. You explain to a woman who's being abused at home that, well, her truth and his truth, well, you know what? None of us, nobody in the world would say, well, in that case, it's his truth versus her truth. They would say, no. If there's abuse, we're going to stop that. You see, friends, truth matters. And God wants us to press in closer to him when we struggle. And it's okay to struggle because we can't quite see and see how, that God, how it correlates and reconciles. And so, friends, we're going to do this series over the next three weeks called Marketplace Miracles. And in the series, we're going to focus on the constant application of kingdom principles, day after day, week after week, month after month, that will result, we believe will result, in lives being transformed. And of course, in that process, we continue to trust God for those instantaneous ones. But ultimately, what I believe God wants to deposit in our hearts is what is it going to take for you to show up and build kingdom day in and day out? And so... One of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, you may not know the name, but you'll know the message version of the Bible, which he wrote. This is what he said. He said, discipleship is long obedience in the same direction. You want to see marketplace miracles? You want to see people's lives transformed in the areas where God places you? This is how you do it. You show up and you're being obedient day after day and week after week. And so we're going to look at some principles in God's Word today. What are some of the kingdom principles for us to be able to see marketplace miracles? And we're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 29. That's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah is one of the major prophets. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. If you've got an iPhone or an Android with a Bible on it, you can kind of find out where it is. If you just want to sit there and look at the Scriptures on the screen, that's also okay. But before we get into Jeremiah 29, let me set the picture for you. This is about 800 years after God first brought the Israelites into the promised land. When he brought them into the promised land, he had given them a specific set of instructions. How to live, how to treat each other, how to look after the poor, how to treat widows, orphans. There were, he had given them Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's full of rules and regulations. God said if you apply this in your nation, things will go well for you. And so for 400 years, they were relatively disciplined at applying it. And Israel reached its zenith at around 1000 BC, the time of King Solomon. Israel was the superpower of the day. 
They were applying godly principles and God's blessing and anointing was upon them. When you read about the amount of gold and ivory and, and wood and cedar wood and, and bronze and silver that went into the temple, it was off the charts. There was no spectacle like it. And there has never been one since then. And kings and queens would come from all parts of the world just to see this. And the Queen of Sheba says this, only half has been told. She couldn't believe what she was being told, and when she got there, she realized it was twice as much as what she had heard. But the state of Israel started going into decline. After King Solomon, it wasn't long, and then the, you know, Israel and Judah separated from each other. But on the whole, kings started just declining. People were living in sin. They no longer looked after the poor. The jubilee was no longer being celebrated. Jubilee every 50 years, land and assets would revert back to families. And this was a way that God had put in place so that families never, one generation wouldn't destroy the wealth for all future generations. And whilst Israel was adopting these principles, it prospered. But things started declining. And now, about 400, about 600 uh, BC, Israel's been taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians are about to take the Jews into captivity as well. And Jeremiah chapter 29 Jeremiah is speaking, and this is what he says to the Jews. He's bringing the word of the Lord. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. You see, God was punishing the nation of Israel because they'd been disobedient. But there were a couple of good Jews that got taken into exile as well. We know this because Daniel and his three friends were some of them. And there's a whole book dedicated to what they did when they were in Babylon. Babylon, just get the picture, guys. It's the cesspit of greed, corruption. It is not a healthy, happy place. As a Jew, being carried away into, into Babylon was not something that you were relished and put on your CV. But Jeremiah tells people, he, says, he writes this and he says to you, he says to the Jews, he says, I am the Lord of hosts and I have sent you into exile. You see, friends, the Jews at that time were thinking the enemy has carried us off. You see, when the enemy carries us off, what do you end up doing? You end up just trying to hang on and survive. But when you realize that God says to you, no, it's not the enemy that's carried you off. I've actually sent you there. When you're sent, you go with a mandate, don't you? You go with a purpose. God is speaking to the Israelites, the Jews, and he's saying, I've sent you into Babylon. Friends, when we go into the marketplace, it's a lot like Babylon, isn't it? Full of greed and corruption, a cesspit of just all sorts of things that we just, oh, that just sickens us. Here's God's word to you. I'm sending you into that cesspit. I'm sending you into Babylon. One of the members of our congregation, a guy called Mike Hinton, I heard a story about him yesterday, a testimony. A well-known venture capitalist and a motivational speaker was here at the business plenary session yesterday. 
Some of you were there. He starts and he says, let me tell you how I met Michael Hinton. This guy gets into my diary, I have no idea how, and I'm sitting in this meeting and I'm kind of jotting down notes, pretending to look like I'm interested. And the meeting comes to an end, and I'm about to just shake his hand and say goodbye, probably never see him again. And just before he leaves, he turns to me and he says, can I pray for you? The speaker stops, he says, you don't understand. Every time somebody walks into my office because they want something from me. They want me to invest in their latest project. They want to have me at one of their events. This is the first business meeting ever where someone is not wanting something from me, but wanting to give me something. God touches his heart. And a relationship starts with Michael and this public speaker. I'm not going to tell you his name because it's not my story to tell, but if you were here yesterday, you'll know who I'm talking about. You see, friends, when we are sent, we look for opportunities to carry the kingdom into every environment. If we have this defeatist mentality where, man, the enemy's just carried me in here, I've just got to hold on and just try and survive, we don't take those opportunities when presented to us because we kind of just, well, look, we shouldn't be here to begin with. But guess what? God's sending us. Verse 5, Jeremiah tells the Jews, not just are you being sent, but this is God's word to you. I want you to build houses, and I want you to live in them. I want you to plant gardens and eat their produce. I want you to take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. You see, God is saying one more thing. He's saying, not just I've sent you, and I've not just sent you there to hang around. I've sent you there to put down roots. I've sent you there to invest. I've sent you there to set up shop. It's very interesting. When people start building homes in an area, guess what it tells you about the area? It tells you guys are excited about what's happening here. They're starting to invest. Friends, when God sends us into Babylon, when he sends us into the marketplace, he sends us there with a mandate, not just to hang around on the periphery, but to invest, to put down roots, to kind of say, you know what, we're going to commit to this thing. Because there's a difference when I'm just kind of standing on the outside and kind of going, look, I don't really want to be here, but God said I must come, so okay, I'm here, versus, all right, I'm in this. I'm plowing the ground with you. I'm investing in this industry with you. I'm committed. I've got my hand to the plow. Guess what happens? We start rubbing shoulders with those that God, in the community that God has placed us. You see, friends, God doesn't want us just to kind of hang around the peripheral. When I was a teenager, I was telling the guys this morning, I don't have one of those uh, prodigal son type testimonies. I always thought they were so cool, you know? I was, you know, guy goes this, he hangs off the deep end in drugs, in rock and roll and all the rest, and then Jesus saves him, and my gosh, what a cool testimony, right? I never had one of those. In fact, from when I was, as long as I can remember, I don't remember a time when I wasn't a Christian. And 
Part of me is really grateful for that. You know, it saved me from a lot of stuff. So I don't have one of those prodigal son type testimonies, but can I tell you what I do have? I have one of those older brother testimonies. The parable of the prodigal son, he comes home and the older brother's on the outside going, ha, what a cheek. Here I'm slaving all day long. I don't even get a banquet thrown for me. And so I was this Christian and I was growing up this Christian and I was this guy that would look at all the other kids in the class and go, man, I'm so glad I don't have that drug problem. I'm so glad I'm not in the principal's office every week. And I'm so glad I don't have to kind of deal with all this other nonsense that's going around. The problem with all of that, which God lovingly confronted me with, is Dorian. But for my grace, I've saved you from a lot of that stuff. But for my grace. And then he said to me, I love every single one of them. How effective do you think you are in helping them see me as a solution for the issues they're facing? And God broke my heart with that because I realized that standing on the outside doing this does not give me access to people's hearts and lives. John tells us that the, Jesus is the Word and that Word became flesh. You see, folks, every single one of us We'll probably remember a time when that truth became flesh in our lives. When we recognized Jesus for who he is and what he's doing, and it became flesh and real in our hearts. When I'm standing on the outside pointing a finger, because I don't want to get involved, because I don't want to be contaminated by that, ugh, that icky, icky stuff, I don't get a chance to, for the truth to become flesh through me to touch the lives of other people. Friends, God is doing something. He's not confused. Even though Babylon is this place of absolute confusion, God is not confused. And so he commands us to put our roots. And this is going to be the part that Jesse's going to focus on next week in the part of the sermon entitled Back to Basics. Go Jesse, yeah. So if you don't like me, don't worry, I'm gone. Jesse will be here next week. And we're going to focus, and you're going to see that there's really two aspects that God expects to see in our hearts and lives. And that's a combination of character and competence. You see, so often as Christians, we understand the character, but, but the competence, well, you know. Anyway, Jesse will get there next week. <laughs> Friends, if the world's going to reject us, let it not be because we are arrogant and full of pride. Amen? Verse 7 gets even better, guys. Jesus, through Jeremiah, prophesies to the Israelites and he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Wait just a minute. <laughs> Dorian, are you telling me that if I work for Anglo-American... I've got to pray and seek the welfare of Anglo-American. Well, no, I'm not saying it, but uh, Jeremiah is saying it. If I work for Investec Bank, I've got to find new and creative ways for them to make more money. Well, I think that's what Jeremiah is saying when he brings the word of the Lord. If I work for Twitter, do I have to make Elon Musk even richer than he already is? 
And the crux of it is, God says, because when he prospers, so will you. When, where you are committed and being employed, when you're praying for their welfare and you're seeking their prosperity, that's what I'm going to link your ultimate reward to. Is, is something in your brain going tilt right now? As I was researching and preparing for the sermon, I came across one of Ed Silvoza's books called Transformations. And in this book, he tells the testimony of a man who owns a hotel chain in Manila in the Philippines. This hotel chain has 1,600 rooms and employs 2,000 people. And business is booming because each of the rooms is rented out five times a day because the clients are 3,000 prostitutes that operate in and around the hotel. The owner comes along to a seminar, a, a service like this, and God challenges him. What are you going to do? How are you going to serve? What are you going to do now that you know about the mandate that I've given you? I think if he sat down with a lot of pastors, they would just say, shut that baby down, man. But God doesn't say that to him. Because if he shuts it down overnight, guess what? 5,000 people all of a sudden their livelihood just evaporates. So God shows him something. He takes him to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is the time when Jesus sends the 70 out. And when Jesus sends the 70 out, he gives them four instructions. He says, I want you to go out, and the first thing I want you to do is I want you to bless people. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to build a relationship with those people. Then if you get an opportunity, I want you to minister to them. And finally, I want you to preach, proclaim the word of the Lord. God tells him, he says, I want you to hire 30 pastors and instruct them only to do the first three. To be a blessing, to build relationship, and if there's a gap, to minister. I do not want them to preach. Three of the 30 can't help themselves. They're pastors, right? They preach. They get fired. But can I tell you what happens? Almost all 2,000 employees become followers of Jesus. Now, when they're cleaning those rooms and preparing them for their guests, they are praying over those rooms and they're saying, God, whoever uses this room, Lord, we pray for your anointing and your blessing upon their lives. Hosts at the reception, full of the Spirit of the Lord, when guests arrive, they say, we are so happy you're here. We'd like to bless you. By the way, if you would like prayer for anything, we have intercessors that would love to cover anything, any prayer need you have in prayer. He starts renovating the rooms and upgrading them. And the hotel becomes so attractive because of the service levels that all of a sudden businesses, uh, business people and tourists start being attracted to this hotel. And the clientele starts changing. By the time they wrote the book, they say that over an 18-month period, not only were those 2,000 employees transformed into 2,000 ministers, but over 10,000 guests had made a commitment for Jesus. Amen. Friends, that's what it looks like when you get into the Babylonian culture and system, and instead of just saying, I'm out of here, I'm shutting this down, you say, God, what is your plan and purpose? God, how do we seek the prosperity of this place? How do I seek the prosperity of a brothel? 
Friends, if we will trust Him, if we will trust Him and we will cover it in prayer, we will see God move mightily. You see, friends, I don't think any church like this would have been able to achieve the touching of 10,000 guests the way those 2,000 hotel staff were able to. Because you see, that is the definition of a New Testament church. It's the ecclesia. It's where two or three are gathered. Yet 2,000 people fired up for Jesus were saying, God, how can we reach and touch and love the people that you're sending us every single day? But we will always get opposition. And that's what happened at the time of Jeremiah. There were a whole lot of false prophets out there going, King, listen, this thing's going to be over in 12 months. 24 tops. Jeremiah was put in stocks. He was put in jail because he was saying, this is not over quick. God is sending you there for 70 years. By the way, 70 years happens to be the same amount of time that Psalm 90 verse 10 tells us is what God promises us. He says, your life, I will give you three score and ten. A score is 20, ten is ten, three times 20 plus ten, seventy. He says, and if you really look after yourself, probably, you know, four score, which is about 80. Some guys are really pushing beyond that, right? It's because the healthcare systems are so much better. What is God saying to us, friend? He's sending us for a lifetime. He's sending us for as long as we live and breathe on this planet. He's not going to extract us and rapture us out of it at any point in time. He's saying, I'm sending you into Babylon. I'm sending you into exile because I have a plan and a purpose for you. I want you to invest. I want you to put down roots. And I want you to pray and serve and make those that you're serving prosperous because I'm linking your reward to theirs. You see, friends, if we hold on to incorrect paradigms, that's why truth is important. If we don't understand God's plan and God's purpose for us in the marketplace, we're going to keep thinking that there are certain things that we should or shouldn't be doing where all we should be doing is going back to the Word of God and saying, Lord, what is your plan? What is your purpose in this situation? And friends, in this, there is the promise of victory. Because in verse 11, he says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Friends, that's God's promise to us. In the middle of Babylon, that's God's promise to us. I'm wrapping up with a short testimony. Many of you may know I have a company called Pico Power. We build um, small uh, generating systems, you know, small off-grid electrification systems, uh, small backup systems for you know, load shedding, etc. The reason I got involved in this company is because God showed me this picture. 600 million people in Africa without any access to power. Towards the end of last year, a young man stopped me outside the lab at Wits because we still operate from the university. And he said, sir, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, look, let me get to the point. I've seen your system, Pico Power, it looks great. But there are so many systems out there. What makes you think you're going to be successful? I said to him, I said, that's a great question. The first thing we have to do is define what we mean by success. What I mean by success is seeing 600 million people that didn't have access to power 
having access to reliable, cheap electricity. Because that's how I define success. There aren't too many suppliers out there. They're too few. And if I can provide a system that is robust and well-priced and it encourages others to do the same, then there's a greater chance of those 600 million people being able to afford and get access to something that's going to change their lives. What I didn't tell him was that God had been working on a pricing strategy with me. And as I was sitting down and thinking about the pricing strategy and I was applying all those very good MBA principles that we all know so well, which go along something like this. Look at the market, look at your competitors, and then decide how much you can charge. What's the biggest margin you can get away with to sell out all your product? As I was going through that process, God said to me, we're going to do this differently, Dorian. Forget about your competitors. Allow your market to move your heart. But when we set the price... Here's what I want you to do. What's the lowest margin you can charge for this business to be sustainable? You see, folks, because the way we define success is how do we touch 600 million people in Africa with a product that they desperately need and get it to them in a way that puts it in their hands. Folks, God is sending us into Babylon. Let's not resist it. Let's just say, hallelujah, Lord. I know it's not the coolest place to be, but because you've sent me, I'm going. And I'm not just going, Lord. I'm investing. I'm putting down roots. I'm building homes. I'm planting gardens. And I'm living in those homes. And I'm eating the fruit from those gardens. And Lord, I'm going to do one more. Lord, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for the prosperity of those gardens that you put me in. I'm going to pray for their prosperity. And not just pray for it, I'm going to show up and I'm going to do. Because as I do, Father, I know that my reward will be linked to theirs. Let's pray together. Hallelujah, Father. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. If God has challenged you this evening, I don't know whether he's challenged you on whether you've been resisting being sent, or whether he's challenging you because maybe you were kind of like tolerating being in that environment, but saying, God, there's no ways I'm putting down and investing because I just fear being contaminated by it. God's word to you, if that's your fear and concern, is work out that fear in private so I can send you out and use you in public. Maybe you're one of those that has said, for the first time I've realized that God is calling me to pray and contribute directly to the prosperity of my employer. Because I never understood that my reward would be linked to theirs. If any of those have moved on your heart and you're saying, God, I'm ready to sign up afresh. I'm ready to say, Lord, send me. Help me put on roots so that I can be a blessing. Will you stand to your feet? Because I want to pray an anointing over your life. I want to pray a breakthrough of wisdom over your life.
Because as you step into that, people that may never have noticed you before are going to start paying attention. And opportunities are going to open up. And then God is going to say, step into it. Let's lift our hands. Father, use me. Father, use me. Father, you have sent me. I will put on roots. I will invest. And I'll be part of the prosperity of the employer that you've put me with. Lord, I pray for wisdom. I pray for anointing. And I pray for breakthrough. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.